When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Welcome back. My friend Wendy Lee, an academic at Brown University, often talks about academia as having a top chef problem when it comes to race and ethnicity. On Top Chef, contestants of color are told that they need to cook from their roots, and even chefs classically trained in French techniques will never be praised until they cook the Taiwanese beef noodle dish that their grandmother made them as a child. They must hew to an exacting idea of what a white majority audience sees as the qualities and limits of their race. Academia has done the same with how disciplines are ordered around who is allowed to study which author or subject matter based on a tokenism of that person's identity. It's a profound limitation of a person's expertise and autonomy and a microcosm of the ways in which American life often presents as a series of boxes into which people of color must contain their needs and desires. My guest today, Elaine Shea Chow, has written a razor satire of academia and racism in contemporary America that is at once dark comedy and bleak realism. Disorientation is a campus novel that both delights in the tropes of that genre while tearing down the walls that have been built to gatekeep who gets to criticize the university system. Her protagonist, Ingrid Yang, is a graduate student who has been led toward, or better, forced into, studying Xiao Wenchou, a minor canonical poet of suspicious origins. Her fiancé, Stephen Green, is kind and accommodating, except when it comes to his obsession in translating the work of a young Japanese writer who becomes more and more the focus of his attentions. While navigating an increasingly hostile academic environment, Ingrid discovers that her object of study may not be exactly what or who she had imagined. Her academic rival, Vivian Vo, seems at once better equipped to navigate the systems of power that mold a graduate student's life, while also wearing her own blinders when it comes to how understanding racism and racist judgments persist along every part of the political schema. Along the way, Elaine turns her eye to so many of the soft spots of the contemporary campus, drawing out with achingly funny scenes the ways in which academia's conception of its purities is a cover for the same ugliness that pervades in the rest of the country. No one and no institution is spared her critical wit, and the result is a page-turner that often leads you blindsided. Disorientation does exactly what its name describes. It disorients us from the expectations about identity that institutions of the country 
depend on to keep people in their places. I am so pleased to introduce Elaine Shea Chow. Thank you so much for having me, Chris, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Thank you so much for being here. I want to start with that top chef question. Why did you decide to use academia as the setting for a novel about the various kinds of racial essentializing that exist in American life? Mm, yeah, so there are a couple uh, different reasons that sort of culminated in the novel's setting. Uh, so one of them is I had been studying in um, France, doing a PhD in English lit, which I know makes no sense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'd, I'd been, yeah, in the program for two and a half years um, and then decided I had to leave. <laughs> so I quit academia, but it was an environment I was familiar with. So I think that really helped um, just even though you know it was French and not American, I, I had an idea of uh, what the setting was like. And then the other thing is when I first started planning the novel, so this was before I actually sat down and wrote it, but when I was you know meticulously over planning, um, the original idea was set at a university, but it was quite different because Ingrid was older. She was in her 50s. She's married. She's a professor. And two of her students uh, get caught up in a sexual assault case mm. on campus. So this was, you know, the tone was very different. It was very uh, dark and serious. And, you know, I was inspired by this was around like 2015, 2016, when I think a lot of campuses had to reckon with sexual assault. Um, and so as I was planning that, I then found out about Michael Derrick Hudson and what he had done. So he had pretended to be Yifen Chow to get published. And, you know, I was so shocked and uh, just so it, it really, I think, was a reckoning for me. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I just knew I had to write about it. So I just started incorporating it into the novel and that's when it really began changing. And, you know, I, I think I, I just pieced together, well, Ingrid's a professor, so it makes sense she would be researching this poet that I made up, Xiao and Chow. Um, and then the novel uh, really shifted away from, you know, my first, my original conception of it. Uh, so that's sort of how I came up with that setting, but in, in a lot of ways, you know, the way you just described it, like academia to critique these um, issues, societal issues. Yeah, I think it just fell into place. But when I started out, I did not know that's what I would be doing. <laughs> I, I like the sound of, of both of those versions. It'd be interesting for you to uh, to come back to that first idea in some perhaps different way. But I, I'm interested in whether or not you felt like French academia was hewed to some of these same essentializing um, modes that people of color so often find themselves in who are who are either studying or working in academia. Huh. I mean, I think it's hard to say because France, France doesn't really have the same areas of study that we have in the U.S., like Asian American studies, East Asian studies. Um, they have 
they have like more in terms of languages. So they'll have a sort of, they call it culture, literature, language. So you study all of that together. But for example, something like, I don't know, critical race studies or it, it just doesn't exist in France because race is not officially recognized by the government. It's it's considered banned as a concept and a word. So that makes things very different. <laughs> so the word is banned. Well, it's it is a ban from any official document. So to that extent, it's now become a slur. Yeah. So the word race oh my goodness. means you just if you say like Tajas, it means fuck you. I, I don't know. It's so weird. It's I was very confusing going France and the they have other ways of trying to talk about it. So they use the word origins. So mm, you know, when I mm-hmm. lived there, I'd constantly get asked what were my origins. Um, but I'll give you an example of just how entrenched it is in the legal system, in that you cannot sue for racial discrimination. It doesn't exist. So wow. there was mm-hmm, there was a famous case of a Turkish woman who had very very clearly been discriminated against because she's Turkish and the only way she could win this lawsuit was her lawyers argued she had been discriminated based on age. Hmm. So that was the only way she could achieve some justice. But they, you know, if you can't legally say that word, you just there was no way around it. In France, I, I feel like people since they're so cagey about race and identity, they, I think, wouldn't say, you know, oh, why are you, why aren't you studying your culture? Because they're, they're so adamant on being colorblind. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, (laughs) It's mm -hmm. not that France isn't deeply racist, because it is. But when I'm thinking back, um, you know, there weren't a lot of people of color studying modernist lit. Uh, So I guess I was an outlier, but I don't remember anyone saying, you know, like, what are you doing, doing this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was teaching ESL and I definitely would get some comments from my students being like one student one time said to me, well, I basically just walked into the class, you know, and went to the teacher's desk and the student said in French, um, I thought this was English class, not Chinese class. Ha ha ha. And, you know, everyone burst into laughter. So those things would happen to me, but yeah, in academia, I think, you know, the liberals, like, they just want to believe they're colorblind. So, hmm. <laughs> interestingly, yeah, I didn't really get comments. Well, that's a that's a wonderful education for me because I knew none of that about France. And so that it, it's interesting the way one um, is is basically more explicit about what the other is trying to do. Mm. Um, but I'm I'm interested in there's a moment in which Ingrid's advisor, as she he's trying to get her to study this poet, says, many students have told me they feel more connected to their Chinese heritage by delving so deeply into Chow's poetry. When you were thinking about how Ingrid would be led down this very, very narrow road of possibilities, how were you understanding um, her place in academia and what it would mean to her to be told that she was limited to just this one area of study if she was going to be true to her, you know, quote unquote, Chinese heritage. 
Yeah, so I think that is much more common in America, this idea that, um, yeah, just where that you can only do sort of one thing if you're a person of color. And so, um, yeah, it, it was that, that, that feeling of uh, being boxed in that I was very familiar with. Um, and I also had to think of just how Michael would... Uh, <laughs> convincingly, you know, I don't even know if it's very convincing, but I needed to try to give him some kind of argument for taking uh, very, I guess, in a way, malleable students like Ingrid and basically coercing them into something they don't want to do, but framing it in a way that seems really positive, Hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. um, almost like you can push it even further and if she didn't want to study a Chinese poet, he could be like, what are you ashamed of being Chinese? And <laughs> you know what I mean? It's um, so, yeah, I think what he's saying is just, it, it's not necessarily that it's right or wrong. It's just Ingrid doesn't want to do it because mm-hmm. obviously now there are plenty of um, Asian academics who specifically want to study Asian history or literature and you know they're drawn to it for many different reasons but yeah in this case he's just trying to uh find a way to mask his true you know evil plan (laughs) there is a lot of formal audaciousness in this debut novel there are pieces of poems you stage an entire court scene from a play in which Stephen is accused of having an asian fetish you write a frighteningly realistic academic abstract for a paper by ingrid's nemesis vivian it seems like you took a lot of joy out of seeing what kinds of forms your narrative could hold. How did you decide to bring those kinds of writing into your novel, and were there unexpected hurdles in doing so? Oh, thanks, Chris, for noticing. Um, I did have <laughs> a lot of fun with them. Yeah, I think they first started arising out of necessity, where you know I, I sometimes have to inhabit these very unsavory. Uh, attitudes like the um, Chinese uh, anti-Chinese madman who writes the Yellow Peril 2.0 petition. Mm -hmm. Um, And while I could, you know, figure out a way to describe it in the third person, because the the novel's written in that perspective, um, it just seemed in a lot of ways easier to let him speak for himself, right? Like if I just gave him the stage like he he can condemn himself very easily Mm -hmm. (laughs) and sort of do that work for me instead of me having to really describe um just how xenophobic he is yeah so there are moments like that and michael's blog was another way you know oh gosh yeah yeah, his ascension (laughs) to sort of trumpian heights and um I, i think once i started collecting a few of those instead of becoming just it becoming a coincidence, I was like, oh, let me make this intentional, you know, let me keep Mm -hmm. going. And so then incorporating things, yeah, like the abstract and the play and other little uh, bits and pieces. I think it was just fun for me as someone who, um, I I don't know, even when I was a kid, I, I think I really loved kind of found objects in books, right? When someone mm. would find a, a map or 
um, a letter or so. It just seemed so cool to me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think I retained that joy of having a book, you know, contain these little pieces of of real objects. It, it's a joy for the reader, and and I feel the same about sort of those fine found things in in books, and and certainly I I, I took a lot of pleasure from finding them in yours. I, I want to talk for a second about Stephen, uh, the fiance of Ingrid. He is the focus of some of the most painfully funny and devastating satire in the novel. Stephen could generously be called an Asia-file and less generously a fetishizer of Asian women and culture. He finds sudden fame as the translator for a hot and -and up-and-coming Japanese writer whom he controversially translates without being able to speak Japanese nor having spent any considerable time there. His academic obsessions appear to Ingrid to fold into his personal attractions, and she worries that he is simply that she is simply part of a fetish. Can you talk about how Stephen first came into the world of disorientation? Yeah, um, I mean, he was his type was a huge part of why I needed to write this book. I think something that really marked my life and marked um, the lives of so many Asian women I know is this very dehumanizing experience of being fetishized and how I think it's been represented in media in a very uh, cursory way where it might be alluded to and, and it's a joke and it's taken, you know, you know, it's just sort of observational humor, right? that I had never read a book that really considered the stakes of fetishization as dehumanization and what that mentally does to you, right? Like how it messes you up. Um, and I, I wanted to write it in a way where on one level for myself, right? I think a lot of writing, uh, fiction writing is is working things out for yourself mm-hmm. as a person, not necessarily as a writer. And then also because I do believe in the importance of feeling uh, seen and, and validated, right? And naming a phenomenon, you uh, pull it out of, uh, let's say, obscurity, but also you, it's the opposite of gaslighting, right? So I wanted... Um, Asian women who had had similar experiences to know they weren't alone and that the stakes are as high as they feel, you know, that it isn't a joke. And this has very painful, violent, real world consequences. Um, So that was a huge impetus for wanting to write a novel in the first place. So in every version, so I basically wrote three different versions. And in every version, this is a part of it. Ingrid having a white partner, um, like he kept changing. He was, it was Kenneth, Josh, and then Stephen. <laughs> excellent, excellent name. <laughs> right. Um, and in each uh, version, you know, I changed a lot of the plot, a lot of the characters, but what was constant um was her having to realize that this person she loves and is in a long-term relationship with, you know, may not love her as just who she is as a person, right? 
and she has to really come to that painful reckoning. Um, yeah, so th- this is why I knew I had to write him. And I think Stephen's iteration compared to Kenneth and Joshua, <laughs> what was important to me was showing that abusers aren't necessarily just these stereotypes we have of, you know, someone being very physically dominating or being a quote unquote alpha male, you know, like Steven is very soft spoken and he's seems very harmless. And I wanted to show that, yeah, abuse comes in all forms. And sometimes these guys are even more dangerous because they can hide it so well and they learn the language that's what Stephen does right he he yields this language of identifying manipulative moves and you know he learns like gaslighting and he uses that all against Ingrid (laughs) (laughs) so that's sort of like the most terrifying kind of abuser in a way you know (laughs) because it's so hard to prove what you're feeling is real Mm. Stephen could be seen as Ingrid's academic foil. She's pushed into studying something that represents her her roots, and Stephen obsesses over cultures and languages that are not his own. Can you talk about those as two sides of the same academic coin? Yeah, I think this is all... These are new conversations we're having because I think um, historically in a department, let's say, of East Asian studies, it was just expected and, you know, seen as completely unproblematic that the person, the, the people who are considered experts in this culture are not Asian. And it this goes back to just how America has always felt very comfortable in being the authority and other on these places they might journey to or conquer or pillage or, (laughs) you know. um, And so I think it's an extension of that legacy of just colonizing. Um, And I also think that, you know, we have to talk about like, this was really interesting to me to learn that um, East Asian studies was not formed to sort of pay homage to a exotic, you know, faraway culture, <laughs> but it was to better understand the enemy. You know, mm-hmm. these departments were formed during like the Red Scare, and and the idea was, well, let you know, if we can better understand them, <laughs> we can better defeat them and keep communism at bay. And I think that was really eye-opening. And um that's why the third world, um, why am I thinking third world revolution? No, the third world liberation front in the 60s at Berkeley, what was so incredible was for the first time, these young scholars and students were saying, we demand, uh, and it's written in their demands, you know, we demand an Asian studies department run by Asian people. Hmm. demand a black studies department run by black people. I think, you know, instead of this idea where it's sort of like um, unfairly being forced to study your own culture, these these students wanted to study their own culture in part because it's been so misrepresented, right? And I think um, in part also because just the stakes are higher when it's something like how you're represented will have a tangible effect on your life and the life, um, the lives of your family members. 
Another really interesting character is Vivian Vo, who's an uber-productive dream student um, who's out to pull back the veil on academia's love of yellow face and the fetishization of Asian women. She's also Ingrid's academic nemesis. Uh, Ingrid views her as a rival and a rabble-rouser, but Ingrid's own awareness of how her race and gender are used against her brings her closer to Vivian's way of viewing the world than she might care to admit. How did you want Vivian's often overplayed radicalism to operate in Ingrid's awakening? Mm, Yeah, I always knew Ingrid had to meet an Asian person who was so self-assured and basically on the opposite spectrum of where Ingrid is at socially and politically. Um, So in one version, uh, Vivian was uh, Jeremy Nguyen and Ingrid ends up having this um, crush on him. And that ended up seeing, you know, I think it was a little too pat. <laughs> but in the third final version, Vivian, I think was so important to show um, what is on the other side of liberation, right? When you disavow needing white approval, and when you disavow white systems, you know, what is on the other side? And I think what was tricky for me with both Jeremy and Vivian's characters is that, um, like, for example, with Jeremy, I completely left him alone. You know, it was still satirical. It was still comical. And everyone had that lens turned on them except Jeremy. (laughs) Hmm. Because I was Mm -hmm. like, well, I don't want people to think I disagree with Jeremy. (laughs) Um, And then I realized when I was writing the third version, it just was really uneven. You know, it didn't sort of make sense that everyone's character got that treatment um, and is allowed to be a little exaggerated except Vivian. So I just let myself exaggerate it in a way that, yeah, for comedic effect, but I think it is pretty clear by the end of the novel and just knowing me or <laughs> people being familiar with my essays and things like that. Like me and Vivian, um, we believe the same things. And that's why I think I feel comfortable, um, you know, sort of lovingly teasing her. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think it was really fun to write these two characters that are so different from each other. And fun to inhabit Ingrid just having basically raging jealousy but you know because we're so stuck in her head I think for a lot of the novel it's hard to see Vivian objectively and that's true right Ingrid hates her so much that the reader is like yeah I hate Vivian (laughs) but you know I think at the end I really try to show her struggles and everything she's had to overcome to get to where she is I think, yeah, I do. Now that you say that, I think that's one of the most clever aspects of the novel is how much you shield who Vivian really is from the reader because we're so tightly hewn to Ingrid. And I think it allows for this um, quite sudden change in how we view her and how we understand the the legitimacy of all the things that she's been trying to get Ingrid to care about throughout the novel. Oh, that's great to hear. 
so there is an extraordinary hoax at the center of the novel that I will not reveal, as its revelation is one of the great pleasures of disorientation. But it feels like the notion of the hoax, a deception played out in order to embarrass the hoaxee, um, can be read metaphorically across your entire novel. There are so many kinds of hoaxes. What are some of the the subtler hoaxes that you see playing out in the novel? Or how does that concept of the hoax work in other ways, do you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, I love a hoax. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I love a mystery. So... I think once, yeah, like you say, there's there's this main mystery at the heart of the novel, but then I started realizing there are a bunch of smaller ones. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, no one is who you really think they are, right? So we've talked a little bit about how, you know, Stephen seems very sweet and gentle in the beginning, and then we, we see him um, as this abuser by the end of the novel, and Vivian becomes more dimensional. I think another one, like like a clear hoax, was Azumi's character. So Azumi, for most of the novel, she's just a very stereotypical, you know, kawaii um, Japanese girl who who seems to be playing up every single stereotype mm-hmm. <laughs> about you know Japanese woman that that you might get from watching like anime. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I really had to pray that readers would stick with me until a certain point in the novel where it is pretty, you know, far along where we realize um, that there's more to her character um, and that she's actually it, it has sort of Mm, what's it uh, (laughs) because I also don't really want to give it away but yeah yeah I I can see why not (laughs) um but essentially that that was another hoax um and people just I think at one point Ingrid says people keep turning out to be you know someone else someone different and Mm. I think it's so common that not common but I think in the past few years as we've been talking about about identity, um, there are more and more stories about this coming out, right? And more recently, the what has sort of captured America's attention are scammers. So I'm sure you've heard of, right? There was like the Tinder swindler. There was that mm-hmm. the the ger- the German woman. No, no, she was Russian, but she pretended to be a German heiress and then cheated all these new yorkers oh, yeah, out of money yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah she had a netflix show and then yeah, that's right it just came out that this tv writer for gray's anatomy um pretended to be dying from cancer whoa what yeah i'll, I'll send you the article after yeah, please. Very, <laughs> very fascinating but you know so i think for whatever reason we really are in this age of hoaxes and scams and i it is very interesting that you know what is causing this anxiety to invent a new self mm-hmm. um you know i i don't know i don't know but i i think it it definitely fascinated me and and i wanted to yeah explore it in the novel i've always thought of hoaxes and i agree that we appear to be in a in a prolonged period in which 
our culture is obsessed with hoaxes and the revelation of hoaxes too mm-hmm. is really important. But I've always thought that the hoax was a sign that there was something in flux in the in the culture and that the the need to have a kind of like surprise revelation of something that we assumed was one way and was in fact the other underneath it was some discrete cultural thing and i think because disorientation is about disorienting us from ideas that we have either explicitly or implicitly about what identity is that it felt like to me that it was saying yes we've sort of been under this hoax that we could point to identity and say, oh, it acts like this and it is like that. Um, But in fact, that that sort of, you know, has been hurting people and and hurting the ways in which they can express the complications and fullness of their selves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that makes sense. So the campus novel genre has, in at least in my reading of it, been too white for too long. Um, But writers like you and Brandon Taylor with his masterful real life have reframed and reimagined what the genre can hold. I'm interested to know if there were campus novels that were inspirations for disorientation, even if that inspiration was for reasons of mockery. And I'm also wondering if you would just share some recent books that you've been loving recently. Yeah, um, I also loved Real Life so much. And I, I'm trying to remember if I heard um, Brandon Taylor say in an interview that he doesn't consider it a campus novel, um, which is interesting. I don't know if I, I need to fact check that. Um, I, I think that's probably right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was not a genre I was really familiar with. I think I, I had read, let me think, I had read uh, On Beauty by Zadie Smith, which I think is, is uh, was, you know, also a take on Howard's End, which mm-hmm, is a campus mm-hmm. novel, right? But I really, I'm trying to think of what other ones I read. I had really not read that many. And I think at one point when I was either writing or revising the novel, you know, I checked out from the library, like Lucky Jim, uh, notes from, or Dear Committee Members. Oh, yes. Yeah. One of them. That's, and, that's a fu- such a funny book. And, and I remember reading, you know, a few pages and just, I think it, it stressed me out. <laughs> this idea of this is like a genre and I think I got stressed out by the idea of if I read them there there would be certain expectations I would suddenly be aware of you know because Mm, I got to go mm -hmm. in with a kind of wonderful ignorance that I think freed me from yeah I didn't really know the genre oh you know which ones I did read that I didn't really even think of um, are the Changing Places novel? Oh, yes, the David Lodge one. David Lodge, yeah. I read them years ago, and they were so funny. Those um, are great classics of yeah. that genre. But yeah, so generally speaking, I didn't have that much experience, though. And, and so I didn't really... I think I like just kind of doing what felt organic. You know, the, in a lot of ways, the setting was just useful for me to talk about the things I really cared about, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And 
but I, I, I agree that I think just historically looking at what are often called campus novels, they're very white. And I think Dear White People, the film and then the Netflix show, they were really the first. Yeah, I think I think in a lot of ways they sort of burst open um, this unexplored terrain of just how universities are always a hotbed for really fraught political, racial, uh, you know, social, every single aspect, you know, you can think of like it all can come to a head on a campus because, you know, it's like a microcosm and, and, but really sort of intensified and saturated, you know, Mm -hmm. that's Um, mostly described. Yeah. And, and, you know, well, not all students, many students have to work to put themselves through college, but, um, I think there's this notion that, you know, if you have four years just to study, you you have all this energy to really devote to who do I want to be? How do I feel about the world? You you know, whereas when you start working, you just don't have as much time to (laughs) to think deeply for hours about about these questions. So there's that. And also, I do want to mention, yeah, so one of my uh, wonderful beta readers, Doug, Ishii, who's professor of Asian American studies. Uh, And he, after he read, you know, this early version of disorientation, he was like, have you read The Collective by Don Lee? Because there are a lot of similarities. And I was like, what? You know, I had never heard of this book, even though I had read Yellow and I loved um, Yellow by Don Lee so much. So, you know, I saw like a quick summary and thought, oh, wow, I, I do sense a lot of similarities. I, I'm like nervous to read this. Mm. So I read it after I had, you know, completely finished the novel. And what's incredible is Don Lee publishes in 2012. And there are so many similarities. I just feel like our books are in dialogue you know, and, and what's interesting is it's just, I guess, a lot of the concerns of Asian American, young Asian Americans in 2012 or more like, you know, before then when he was writing it that have stayed the same, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, for anyone listening, I, I really recommend it. And I think he, Don Lee has always been ahead of his time as an Asian American writer. He has never written for sort of like, a palatable version of, you know, he just writes, it feels for a very specific audience. Um, And he was doing that, you know, in the 90s. So yeah, those are sort of my, it's, it's odd to call it an influence. I don't, it's like a post influence. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's a great, and I haven't read the collective. I, I knew that it existed, but it certainly is something that clearly I should be seeking out. And it's wonderful, I think, to find those resonances across periods of time, um, even even when it's not a direct influence, the fact that you're both kind of able to plug into something that is 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 and has continued to be um, a source of, of tension and therefore interest in representation in literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Elaine, thank you so much. It was so nice to get to talk to you about this wonderful novel. I just hope everyone who hasn't already gotten um, disorientation will run out and get it. It is, it's incredibly fun and funny while being um, quite serious and poignant. And I'm thankful I got to talk to you about it. 
Thank you so much, Chris. This has been so fun. Thank you. Well, that's all for me for now. My great thanks to Elaine Shea Chow for talking with me about her tremendous debut, Disorientation. You can find a link to purchase her new novel and all of Elaine's recommendations at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, as well as podcast merch and ways to reach out and pitch authors or books for the show. Next week, I'll be welcoming Sarah Thuncombe Matthews to the show. You won't want to miss it. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.